reply. Help! If you want to see me, you will not do this. We'll make an appointment. Dr. Green, how can you diagnose someone as an obsessive-compulsive disorder and then act as though I had some choice about barging in? There's not going to be a debate. You must... Listen. You said you could help me. What was that? A tease? I can help you if you take responsibility to keep you regular You changed the room around. Two years ago. I also regrew my beard, but you're not interested in changes in me. So Shh, like I, I don't have this mountain of available time. I have to get to my restaurant on time. Now, do you know how hard it was for me to come here? Yes. No, we're not doing this now. I changed just one pattern, as you always said I should. No. Nope. Oh, I read that. Thank you very much. What if this is as good as it gets? Oh. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Hope. Wherever you are, however you may be joining us, it's so great to be worshiping together right now. My name is Scott Raines. I am the lead pastor at Hope's Ankeny Campus, and today we're going to be talking about change. Uh, change is an interesting concept for a lot of reasons. Uh, I think one of the reasons is there's something unifying about change. Uh, it doesn't matter if you would call yourself a Jesus person or not, call yourself a Bible person or not, a church person or not. One of the things we all have in common is there's something going on in your life right now that you wish would change. We all have something in our life that we wish was different. Uh, it could be a job situation something going on in our finances, a relational reality, a health issue. But every single one of us, we have something in our life that we wish would change. And so part of what makes change such an interesting topic to talk about is at the same time, pretty much all of us are resistant to change. We're change averse. We have a strong distaste for change. You ever wonder why that is? Uh, let's dig into it. As, as we get started, let's read this passage from the beginning of Psalm 103. Wherever you are, however you're joining us, let's read this out loud together. Let all that I am praise the Lord. With my whole heart, I will praise his holy name. Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things he does for me. Now, psalm 103 is a psalm of King David. And God has done a lot of really good things in King David's life. And yet David is self-aware enough. He is integrated enough, mature enough, body, mind, spirit. He is wholehearted enough to understand, even with all these good things that God has done for him, sometimes he forgets. How is that possible? How can King David forget the way God brought him from the pastures outside of Bethlehem, just a shepherd boy, and now he's sitting on the throne in Jerusalem? David can't forget that, right? How could David possibly forget it? The same way that you and I forget the really good things, the powerful, life-giving, life-changing, life-saving things that God does in our life. It turns out it has a lot to do with neuroscience. Are you fascinated by our brains 
There are people who study our brains, neuroscientists, amazing some of the discoveries, what they're telling us about the way our brain works, the way our, our brain functions. So we've got short-term memory, we've got long-term memory, and the people who study this thing, they have a name for a part of our brain, they call it the amygdala, and part of the job description of the amygdala is to take in all the experiences of our life. We're always having experiences in our life, and the job of the amygdala is to determine, is this something that I need to remember? Is this something that should be stored in our long-term memory? And so as they watch our brain with these really fancy MRI technology, they can watch our brain in real time. And they find out that two-thirds of the neurons of the amygdala are used to detect negative experiences. Those things in our life that we don't particularly like, uh, things that are difficult, hard, challenging, scary, dangerous, unsafe. When the amygdala detects a negative experience immediately, it pushes that experience into long-term memory. And uh, brain scientists think part of the reason behind this is so we can quickly recall when we're in a similar kind of situation and we can know, danger, danger, this is something we need to avoid, something we need to uh, not go through. One-third of the neurons in the amygdala are used to detect positive experiences, things that fill us with joy, uh, things that give us hope the kinds of things for which we might want to praise the Lord. But again, as they're watching the way the brain works in real time, when we're going through one of these positive experiences, we have to hold that experience, we have to think about it, hold it in our consciousness for at least 12 seconds before the amygdala will then transfer that into long-term memory. There's a guy named Rick Hansen, a clinical psychologist. He's got his PhD. He has written a number of books, including this book, Hardwiring Happiness, Here's the way he talks about this brain function. The brain is like Velcro for negative experiences, but Teflon for positive ones. You can get compliment after compliment after compliment after compliment, and then one person gives you a criticism, and what do you spend the rest of the weekend thinking about? The brain is like Velcro for negative experiences, Teflon for positive ones. Part of the reason we forget the good things that God does for us is our brain is wired to anticipate something negative, something bad is about to happen. Uh, let's dig even further into this, go uh, a layer deeper. So we got short-term memory, long-term memory. There is a field of neuroscience called interpersonal neurobiology. I'm jealous of people that get to say, yeah, I'm in the field of interpersonal neurobiology. Anyway, uh, they're really fascinating in two different types of long-term memory. We have implicit memory and explicit memory. Explicit memory is what most of us think about when we think about memory. So here's a memory I have from childhood. I grew up about an hour north of here, uh, a farm in north central Iowa, and dad raised beef cattle. And so one year, my 4-H project was to raise a calf that I named Tootsie. Uh, when Tootsie was born, Tootsie had hair that looked like a Tootsie roll. I named the calf Tootsie. And early on, when uh, Tootsie was really little, I, I fed Tootsie with a bottle. And then it got more, uh, you know, grain and corn and silage and, you know, big cow food, that sort of thing. By the end of the summer, Tootsie was big enough, I got to show Tootsie at the Hardin County Fair. Uh, this is a picture of Farmer Scott with Tootsie, my big brother Sean in the background. I don't remember the name of the cow that he showed at the Hardin County Fair, but here's what I want you to do. Turn to somebody close to you 
and tell them the name of Scott's cow was Tootsie. Go ahead and do that. Tell somebody close to you, the name of Scott's cow was Tootsie. All right, really good. Now we're going to do something, all of us together. Uh, again, if you're on hopeonline.tv or on one of the other Hope campuses or here in West Des Moines, I'm going to ask you a question. I want us to re- answer the question out loud. The name of the cow that I showed at the Hardin County Fair was what? All right. How kind of you to remember. This is the way our explicit memory works. Explicit memory is our thinking memory. It's our cognitive memory. And and the way the brain science works, if you hold Tootsie the cow in your awareness, you think about Tootsie the cow for 12 seconds, the amygdala will transfer that memory into a long-term memory. Uh, You will never forget Tootsie the cow. (laughs) Sort of. Explicit memory, it's also the memories we forget. So you'll probably forget about Tootsie the Cow pretty quick. Implicit memory works very differently. If explicit memory is cognitive, it's memory we think about, implicit memory is more, it's like a body memory. Uh, uh, It's emotion or feeling memory. Whether we're paying attention or not, whether we're thinking about it or not, implicit memory happens. Example. I'm not a huge fan of dogs. I know a lot of you are. You love your dogs. I'm not a big fan of dogs. And part of the reason why, I got bit in the head by a dog when I was two years old. So here I am now, a full-grown, rather strapping, middle-aged man. (laughs) Whenever I find myself in the presence of a dog, it doesn't matter how cute that dog might be. doesn't matter how big or small that dog might be. When I'm in the presence of a dog, something in my body, a warning Signal starts going off. Danger, danger, danger. I do not have an explicit memory. I don't remember being bit in the head by a dog when I was two. But when I'm in the presence of a dog, even today, initially my my first instinct, my response is to say, you are not safe. This is not good. Something bad is about to happen. Another example. Um, Have you ever had a, a time in your life where Maybe you overreacted to something that was happening in the moment. Uh, You're having a conversation with a family member or a friend. Or you're in a meeting at work and somebody says something. Somebody does something and immediately inside yourself, you, you, you feel intense emotion rising up inside you. It could be anger. It could be a feeling of anxiousness or uh, being ashamed. And in that moment, you respond and you say something and you do something that causes everybody else to kind of take a step back like, Scott got out of bed on the wrong side today, I guess. Later in the day, as you're reflecting back on that moment, on that encounter, on that conversation, you find yourself able to say, I might have overreacted. I might have overreacted. Well, brain science is telling us the more accurate thing to say, instead of saying you overreacted, the more accurate thing to say would be your implicit memory was reacting in that moment. Your brain was taking in what was being said. Your brain was taking in nonverbal cues and interpreting all of that through the grid of your implicit memory. And something that happened in your life maybe years ago, maybe decades ago, whatever they said or did, in that moment it felt like it was happening again. Implicit memory, explicit memory. If you're tracking along, maybe you're starting to think, oh, this is starting to get us into the realm of 
trauma, post-traumatic stress disorder. Uh, you, you think of military veterans next weekend, 4th of July weekend, and there are going to be some veterans who hear a firework go off and immediately in their body, they think they're back on the battlefield. They think the enemy is at hand. They think they're, this is a dangerous and unsafe situation and they're going to have to think themselves to a place where they're able to remind themselves, oh, no, 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 no. That happened a long time ago. In the present moment, I am safe, even though my implicit memory, my body might be telling me I'm not safe. Okay, preacher boy, kind of interesting, but what's the point? <laughs> what does any of this have to do with living a life of faith? Growing as a follower of Jesus Christ. We'll, we'll get there. Kind of the godfather of interpersonal neurobiology is a guy named Daniel Siegel. He works out of uh, UCLA in Southern California. Here's what he says. The brain is an anticipation machine that shapes ongoing perception by what it automatically expects based on prior experience. It's a bit of a mouthful. The brain's an anticipation machine. Our brain is constantly anticipating or predicting what is about to happen. But the prediction is almost 100% based on experiences we have had in the past. And remember, if, if the way memory works, our brain is like Velcro for negative experiences, our brain has primed us, conditioned us to predict or to expect something negative is about to happen. And that gets us back into this, this topic of change that we want to look into today. You've had a lot of experiences around change in your life, some positive and some negative, but it's the negative ones that you remember more quickly, more easily. So when we start talking about change, something needs to change, we're going to change things, your implicit memory kicks in and something in your brain is telling you this is not a good idea. Uh, change is a threat. Everybody recognize this image on the screen? The Casey's logo, right? Wrong. It's the old Casey's logo. And then they changed it. And I don't remember if it was a year ago or a couple years ago, we started seeing the new logo and the new font as we were driving around town. And pretty much everyone in our family vehicle, when they saw the new logo, would mutter. Why did they do that? Why did they change it? I like the old one better. That is a corporate logo. A pretty innocuous change will not impact our day-to-day -day living whatsoever. Mutter, 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 mutter. There are other changes in life that are completely disruptive to the way we live our lives, the way we relate to one another. Say hello to the last couple of years. I don't remember exactly when it was, but it was sometime before the pandemic. Uh, Pastor Mike was preaching a sermon on the rapidly accelerating rate of change that we are living with in our culture. And he referenced a book by Thomas Friedman, uh, Thank You for Being Late. And, and in the book, Friedman is pointing out all the ways technology and uh, computers and microchips and everything that's changing, and it's changing faster than we're able to keep up with it, and trying to help us understand you know, the amount of change that, that's happening all around us, that we're just living in it. He tried to make a comparison. If, if automobiles... If the Volkswagen Beetle, 1971, had changed 
uh, in the similar way that microchips, computer chips had changed, then today that Volkswagen Beetle would go 300,000 miles per hour. It would get 2 million miles per gallon and it would only cost 4 cents. That'd make a difference in the family budget, wouldn't it? Lots of change all around us. And th this was happening prior to the pandemic. Then the pandemic hit, and to borrow a phrase from Spaceballs, we went from warp speed to ludicrous speed. <laughs> Two people have seen Spaceballs. Thank you. Um, <laughs> all kinds of change. And I wonder if you've heard this in the place where you work or in organizations that you are a part of. Have, have you heard this statement by someone in the last couple of years? The things that used to work no longer work. We actually had a, a meeting about this here at Hope just this week. Uh, leaders, pastors from all the Hope campuses just kind of talking about, you know, how is change impacting the way we do ministry? The, the gospel never changes. Our mission and vision, it's still the same. But the way we carry out the mission and vision, doesn't it necessarily change in the times we're living in? Doesn't it absolutely need to change the way we think about how are we the church? What does it mean to be the church? People who study the church world and church culture, they say the last two years has kind of fast-forwarded everything. People who are predicting or anticipating where's the church going to be in a decade, we're already there. And so that's a lot of change in a short amount of time. No wonder people are saying the things that used to work no longer work. And when the things that used to work no longer work, what's necessary? What, what's required? Change. According to the Center for Creative Leadership, 75% of change initiatives fail because of resistant company culture. 75% of change initiatives fail not because they're terrible ideas, fails because the company is resisting the change. Uh, Gallup came out with the results of uh, some research they'd been doing on faith in America a week ago, two weeks ago. Uh, the number of people, the percent of people who believe in God in this country has now dropped to the lowest it has ever been. All kinds of reasons for that, undoubtedly. Might this be one of the reasons? M might part of the reason that people are Stopping believing in God or not believing in God is because we are so resistant to change in church world. Whether you're leading a church or leading a company, a business, a classroom, whether you're just leading yourself, you're leading a home, this is our dilemma. We know change is needed and we are resistant to change. We're like Melvin Udall, Jack Nicholson's character and As Good As It Gets, bursts into his counselor's office. He just blurts out, help, help me. And he said, I've, I've been trying some changes. It doesn't feel like it's getting better. It kind of feels like it's getting worse. He knows change is needed. He's very resistant to change. Did you hear what he said as he's walking through the, the waiting room, the reception area? He says, what if this is as good as it gets? We know change is needed. We're resistant to change. We, we spend a lot of time identifying the problem. Let's take the rest of our time to uh, point to some solutions. Where does our help come from? And that gets us back to Psalm 103 in the words of King David. 
Let all that I am praise the Lord. May I never forget the good things God does for me. And the next thing that we read, David just starts making a list of all the good things that God does for him. If our brains are sort of wired to focus on the negative, maybe an important part of the change process, it it might begin with simply making a list so that we can remember the good things God does for us. Maybe your list and David's list would be similar. God forgives all my sins and heals all my diseases. God redeems me from death and crowns me with love and tender mercies. God fills my life with good things. My youth is renewed like the eagles. The Lord gives righteousness and justice to all who are treated unfairly. He revealed his character to Moses and his deeds to the people of Israel. The Lord is compassionate and merciful, slow to get angry, and filled with unfailing love. This is who God is. This is what God does. And yet we forget it. And when we forget, maybe it would be an important thing for us to have a list that we can go back to to remind ourselves, here's the good things that God has done in my life. When we forget the good things God's doing in our life, maybe it would be an important thing to turn to Jesus, the one who is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one that in our Bible reading we heard, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Never changes. This is who God is and this is what God does and and that never changes. So part of the good news for us this morning is the never-changing God is always changing us. The never-changing God is always changing us. The more we grow in our faith, the more we are able to remember the good things God does for us because as we grow in our faith, we begin to trust that God is good, that God is faithful, that God comes through that God doesn't fail. Think of the people of Israel. They're in bondage in Egypt for over 400 years, and then God finally rescues them, delivers them, and they're on their way to the promised land, but they're not to the promised land yet. They're in that in-between time. And they're no longer in bondage, but everything has changed. And it doesn't take long before the people start complaining because everything feels uncertain everything feels unfamiliar and uncomfortable and they cry out to God they complain to God basically they're saying we want to go back to what was familiar they got all these questions for God where are we going to get food to eat in the wilderness how are we going to find water to drink and why did you bring us out of Egypt didn't we tell you this was going to be a bad idea don't you know God that change is negative God listens to their complaint and God answers their complaint by giving them bread from heaven. Let me read a little bit about how this happens in Exodus chapter 16. The Israelites were puzzled when they saw this bread from heaven. What is it? They asked each other. And Moses told them it's the food the Lord has given you to eat. The Israelites called the food manna. Do you know how you ask the question, what is it, in the Hebrew language? You say manna. Manna is the Hebrew phrase. It's a question. What is it? They, they literally eat their questions. I think about that. Remember the way this worked? 
God would send manna. Every morning they'd, they'd come out of their tents and there'd be manna all over the ground. And they would pick the manna that they needed for that day. If they picked too much, it would rot, it would spoil overnight. And so this is part of the process of God doing this transformational work in the life of God's people so they learn to trust God. Uh, they're eating their questions. What is it? What is God doing? Why did he bring us out here? Where, where are we going to get water? How long are we going to be out here? Are we there yet? They're eating their questions, but in the process, they go to bed every night and they're like, hey, God provided for me today. And they wake up the morning, God provided for me today. God didn't fail me today. God didn't fail me today. And as that went on, day after day after day, maybe they got to a point where they could begin to go to bed trusting God didn't fail me today if God did good things for me today maybe I can trust God to do that for me tomorrow as well it's part of the way God's transforming work happens in our lives it happens through the people of Israel in the wilderness and the exodus story in the old testament the apostle Paul talks about this process of God changing us and transforming us all kinds of places in the New Testament. He talks about it. 2 Corinthians 3 is one of the places. Let's read this out loud together. The Lord, who is the Spirit, makes us more and more like him as we are changed into his glorious image. For followers of Jesus Christ, change is not something to fear. Change is not something to resist. Change is the goal. Following Jesus is a growing experience. It's one of our core values at this church. It comes from verses like this and a whole bunch of other verses. The more we follow Jesus, this transformation process is underway where more and more all the time we reflect to the people closest to us, to the world around us, we reflect the image of God's son, Jesus. Uh, let me read through just four other places where we see this idea. 2 Corinthians 5.17 Anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. Change. Galatians 6.15, what counts is whether we have been transformed into a new creation. Romans 12.2, let God transform you into a new person by changing the way you think. And it's not a one and done kind of deal. This is an ongoing process. Colossians 1 verse 6, the good news is bearing fruit everywhere by changing lives. By changing lives. Now, we need to be honest and confess that we have a lot of Israelite in us. Just like the Israelites started to complain when things got uncertain and uncomfortable, they longed for what was familiar. This is the pattern for all of us. You have familiar patterns of relating to God, you have familiar patterns of relating to the people in your life. And just like at the macro level, corporations, companies, businesses, churches are starting to uh, say, what do we do? Because the way things used to work no longer work. There comes a time in each of our lives where we have to kind of explore that process for ourselves as individuals. The things that used to work for me no longer work. The things that used to work in my marriage. The things that used to work in my family system. The things that used to work in my friendships, the things that used to work in my relationship with God to help me feel close to God, to help me trust God and know that God loves me. Those things no longer are working. Now what? Everything feels uncertain, uncomfortable, unfamiliar. Now what? 
There was a book that came out two months into the pandemic, uh, May of 2020. The book is called Life is in the Transitions, written by a guy named Bruce Failer. It's a, a change management book. He talks about transitions in life. Some of them are super positive transitions. Uh, our oldest son, Dalton, recently graduated from college on Friday night. And uh, yesterday morning, I was up in St. Paul helping him move into his first apartment. Got a job, a new apartment, he's a college graduate, lots of transitions in a short amount of time for Dalton, and most of them are good, right? But there's still some stress connected with all of that. There are other transitions we go through in life that are completely overwhelming in the kind of stress they bring into our life. Uh, he refers to these kinds of uh, events that we go through as life quakes, losing a job, the death of someone you love. And the grief process that follows that. Changing careers. Changing relationships. Becoming sober. Becoming healthier. These life quakes are completely disruptive to our way of life. These life quakes knock us off our feet. And he says when you go through a life quake, when you experience a life quake, typical life quake takes three to five years for us to get through we're what a little over two and a half years into a pandemic not over yet the the life quake that's connected to what we've been going through it's not over yet so think of the life quakes that you've gone through in your life some of you might be in the middle of one right now thank goodness they don't take 40 years like the people of israel in the wilderness but when you're in the middle of a life quake three to five years feels like an eternity Change is hard. When we're going through change, when we're going through something like a life quake, our implicit memory is going to kick in. The, this Velcro part of the amygdala that helps us remember negative experiences is going to kick in and say, that's the, kind, that, the last time I went through a life quake, it almost took me out. I don't want to ever experience something like that. I don't want to feel the way I felt when I was going through that experience. I want to stop feeling that way as soon as possible. The uncomfortable uncertainty of uh, change and, and what is unfamiliar. So part of what it means to be people who are growing in faith and maturing in faith, this transformation process that God does in our life, with God's help, we develop the discipline to remain in the uncomfortable uncertainty of life. Not escape it, but allow God to do God's transforming work in the midst of it. For people of faith, this maturing process, we develop the discipline with God's help, by God's grace, to remain in the uncomfortable uncertainties of life. Remain in me, Jesus says. Abide in me. Everything else around you is changing and chaotic. It feels out of control and you're longing for the familiar. Let Jesus be your familiar. The one who never changes. He's always changing you. Uh, one more verse as we get ready to start winding this thing down. This is 2 Corinthians 5.14. So I'll read this out loud together. Christ's love controls us. Uh -oh. How do you like that? I mean, one of, the, one of the things we hate about change is we love to be in control. And when things are changing, we, we start to lose control. And we certainly don't like how that feels. We don't like how it feels if someone is controlling us. So for some of you, we read a verse or see a verse, Christ's love controls us. Your implicit memory is danger, danger, danger. Don't, don't go there. 
What if the most important word in this verse is not control, but it's love? It's almost vacation Bible school time, Hope Ranch. We've got a ranch theme for vacation Bible school. The, the idea behind this verse, it's a ranch term. Do you know they had ranches in Israel in the Old Te- uh, New Testament? So some translations, instead of control, it says constrains or compels or urges us on. But it's a ranch term. I grew up on a farm. Most of the time the cattle are out in the pasture, but a couple of times a year dad needed to give them medication or vaccinations to keep them healthy and growing. And we were not like a Yellowstone ranch. We didn't go out and lasso them up and give them the, we, we herded them into the pen and then on the side of the pen there was this narrow chute, a cattle chute, and one by one they go into that chute and at the end of it there's a head gate and when they're in the head gate that's a safe place where you can administer uh, the medication that's going to keep them healthy and growing when a cow goes into a a chute it can't back up it can't turn around there's only one way to go and that is forward that's the idea behind Christ's love controls us Christ's love compels us the love of Christ holds us and squeezes us and pushes us It, it moves us to a place where as we're growing in our faith we recognize I'm not turning around not going to do me any good to turn around I can't turn around I can only go forward I can only go forward with Jesus and I'm willing to do it because I trust in God's love for me that if I keep going with Jesus there are good things for me I'm remembering the good things God has done for me in the past the healing God has provided the help God has provided the hope God has provided and I'm trusting there's more of that ahead of me Jack Nicholson won uh, the Best Actor Oscar for his portrayal of Melvin Udall in this film, As Good As It Gets. Not a family-friendly film, uh, but it asks some important questions. Like, do you believe change is possible for individuals, for relationships, for the world? At one point in the film, the three main characters are on a road trip from New York City to Baltimore, Maryland. And uh, one night, Melvin and Carol, who is played by uh, Helen Hunt, Uh, they decide to go out for dinner. They show up at the restaurant and they tell Melvin, this is a fancy restaurant, you need a coat and a tie. Here, we've got some in the closet, you can wear these. He's like, no, I'm not putting those on. So he leaves Carol at the restaurant, speeds to the closest clothing store, gets himself a coat and tie, comes back, and finally they're able to sit down for dinner and here's what happens. Take a look. You want to dance? Well, I've been thinking about that since you brought it up before. And? No. Look at this place. They make me buy a new outfit. They let you in in a house dress. I don't get it. What? Wait, wait, no, wait, why? Where are you going? Why? I mean, I... uh, I didn't mean it that way. I mean got to sit down. You can still give me the dirty look. Just sit down and give it to me. Pay me a compliment, Melvin. I need one. Quick. You have no idea how much what you just said hurt my feelings. The moment that someone gets that they need you, they threaten to walk out. A compliment is something nice about somebody else. This is a request from June. Now or never. Okay. Happy anniversary.
and mean it. I've got this, what, ailment. <laughs> My doctor, a shrink that I used to go to all the time, he says that in 50 or 60% of the cases, a pill really helps. I hate pills. Very dangerous thing, pills. Hate. I'm using the word hate here about pills. Hate. My compliment is, that night when you came over and told me that you would never... Um... Um, all right, well, you were there. You know, you know what you said. Well, my compliment to you is... The next morning, I started taking the pills. I don't quite get how that's a compliment for me. You make me want to be a better man. That's maybe the best compliment of my life. Well, maybe I overshot a little because I was aiming at just enough to keep you from walking out. <laughs> <laughs> What's the name of the cow that I showed at the Hardin County Fair? What's the name of the God who comes from heaven to earth, born in a manger in Bethlehem, grows up, goes through every kind of life quake that you and I experience in our life, and is the same yesterday, today, and forever? What's the name of that God? Jesus, and Jesus loves you, and Jesus forgives you, and Jesus is tender and compassionate with you as you go through these changes. The, the love of Carol is compelling Melvin to become a better man. Would you allow the love of Jesus to compel you, to urge you, to become a better follower of Jesus Christ? Everything around you is crazy, chaotic, changing, feels like you're standing on sinking ground. It's time to stand on the solid rock. Let's stand and let's sing to the one who never changes right now. <laughs> 